Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community, a number of founding teams that have met in there, a number of nonprofits that have been established, a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guests are Lindsay Hole and Maya Techley, co-founders of Dispatch Goods. Dispatch Goods set out to make reuse easy and delightful for everyone. Now they met through the Sustainable Ocean Alliance where Lindsay was working to launch Dispatch Goods and Maya was the West Coast Partnerships lead at Caviar. Lindsay had seen the plastic crisis firsthand as a surfer Maya understood the enormity of the issue via her time working in food delivery. They both felt compelled to solve this problem as soon as possible, and they came together to do just that. We cover a lot in this episode, including the plastics problem, what makes it so big, what makes it so hard to solve, and what some of the symptoms and side effects are of this difficult problem. We also talk about the dispatch goods approach. We talk about their starting point, their traction to date, we talk about some of the differentiators between them and some other approaches. We talk about some lessons learned, and we also talk about Lindsay and Maya's theory of change and what will happen if Dispatch Goods is wildly successful, and also what it will take to make it so. At any rate, Lindsay, Maya, glad to have you. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. We're really excited to be here. Yeah, super stoked. Thanks for coming. And we were joking before the show that usually you divide and conquer when you do stuff like this. But from my standpoint, we've had many discussions before and I've never not talked to the two of you together. So I'm not sure I believe you on that. <laughs> I think the story in Background of Dispatch, it, it sounds the same coming from either one of us. We're pretty interchangeable, but it'll be fun to do it together this time. Yeah, it's a special treat for us to be together. <laughs> I don't believe you on that either. <laughs> <laughs> but Lindsay, kicking things off, what's Dispatch Goods? Yeah, so Dispatch Goods is a reverse logistics company accelerating the shift to reusable packaging. And when I say reverse logistics, what I mean is the collection, sorting, processing, cleaning infrastructure 
that's required to have an easy and delightful experience with reuse. We really modeled it after recycling, curbside recycling pickup, and thought if we're going to really tackle this problem at scale, we need something that's as easy as recycling. So we launched really with this vision of a fourth bin, because in the Bay Area, we have trash, compost, and recycling bins, and really thought we needed an infrastructure to facilitate a fourth bin system that's facilitating reuse rather than a, a linear waste pathway. And when you say this problem, what problem are you referring to? Oh, the devastating amount of single-use waste, single-use packaging waste in particular, that's created in our food system, but a lot of other areas as well. And I experienced it firsthand. I'm a surfer, and I was living and working and surfing in Hawaii and was really devastated by the microplastics on the most remote beaches. It helped me understand that this was a source generation issue and not a littering issue. I thought that like beach cleanups were for cleaning up after litterers. And then I realized that the dirtiest beaches were actually the most remote ones because no one was there cleaning up what was actually churning in our oceans and landing on our beaches. And so I got involved with Surfrider Foundation and I started to learn more and uncover really the devastating problem of single-use packaging and our, our waste infrastructure at its core. And it'd be fun to hear a bit about the origin story of the company, but maybe before I ask you that, it'd be cool just to hear from each of you about your personal journey and how you came to be doing the work you're doing now and how you came together. So Maya, do you want to kick off? Sure. I would say that I have been a lifelong environmentalist. My parents are very earth friendly. I grew up uh, composting. I thought everyone had a backyard compost that they used to then <laughs> used to plant their gardens and grow vegetables and can their vegetables. And we collected our rainwater and so my dad grew up on a farm, and so that's kind of just been ingrained in my how I was raised is to have the least amount of impact on our planet. That being said, I moved to big cities after I graduated, and the ability to have a low-waste lifestyle was sometimes inaccessible, especially in cities like New York, where the waste problem is pretty extreme. And then I had been cruising along in my career journey and then met Lindsay when I was at Caviar as the restaurant partnerships lead and realized that like, oh, I can align my personal values with my career path and help this incredible woman tackle this gigantic problem. And I felt super compelled her vision. And to me, it's always been the same. It's been creating the infrastructure for reuse and this fourth bin system and that is our North Star that keeps us going and we're obsessed with the problem and tackling it. And what about you, Lindsay? How did you come to be doing the work that you're doing? You mentioned a little bit with the surfing, but maybe just add a little more color on how this all came about. Sure. I would say not exactly like Maya's. I grew up in a suburb of Columbus, Ohio, and sustainability was not on my radar growing up or my parents. We learned about recycling in school and I bugged my parents enough to start recycling. It's like my first advocacy. And then as I moved to the Bay Area and then Hawaii, I just became more and more entrenched in the sustainability movement, in part because I started surfing and saw it firsthand and then got involved with Surfrider Foundation. And right when I started volunteering with Surfrider Foundation, they were launching a program called Ocean Friendly Restaurants. And I kind of hand raised to lead that program. And it was overwhelming success in that like businesses wanted help in shifting to more sustainable practices. And there was a lot of consumers that wanted to use their purchasing power for good. And because of that, we were able to create a really large grassroots movement to basically help facilitate the movement of policy that had stagnated for a decade. 
because we had business buy-in and consumer buy-in, it kind of de-risked that policy for the policymakers. So I saw this like magical thing happen when you were able to create a movement that all like this trifecta of consumers, businesses, and policies could all work synergistically to shift an industry. But as I learned more about waste and where it was going, we were really focused on transitioning restaurants from styrofoam to compostables. But the more I uncovered, the more I realized it was all just still trash and that there needed to be something beyond single use as the only alternative. And so that's how the idea of dispatch goods came. But at that point, I'm on the most isolated landmass on earth with this idea that is a big idea. Building a new infrastructure is not something that's easy. I was working in cardiac surgery, so not exactly in the right career path. (laughs) And so I was trying to figure out how to get back to the Bay Area, completely change my life to enable this big idea. And so went back to get my MBA at Berkeley. And I actually only applied to Berkeley because I figured that's where something like this would start. And about six months into my MBA, started putting together the building blocks for dispatch goods. And yeah, the vision hasn't changed much in that it's the infrastructure piece that I think we're missing. The execution is constantly evolving as we learn more about where the fastest way to build the infrastructure lays. But it's been this waste problem and creating something circular since that moment in Hawaii where I saw the plastic. And as you provided some of this other context, you've touched on it, but I'll just ask you directly, what's the big idea? So the big idea is this fourth bin infrastructure where people can put out reusable products that can be collected, sorted, and cleaned, and then sold back into businesses. The idea started with restaurants being the entry point for creating the local density needed to create this infrastructure. And now we're kind of looking beyond that too, but really it's this fourth bin infrastructure where people can participate just like they participate in curbside recycling. And I would say also diverting as many items that can and should be reused from our other bins. So the landfill bin and the recycling bin, we throw away a lot of valuable materials and resources that can and should be reused. The infrastructure is the piece that just doesn't exist. Yep. And so when you say fourth bin, so there's the landfill bin, there's the recycling bin. Is it composting? That's number three. Yeah, I know it's Bay Area. Not everyone has a compost bin. There's some places that are still working on their second bin. And so this fourth bin, what was the initial germ of an idea? And I get that, okay, fourth bin so that reusable plastics can get bought back and reused at the highest level. But operationally, what was the thinking in terms of how that would actually play out in practice? And then what have you learned along the way? Because it sounds like the why has remained consistent, but what about the how? Where did you start with that thinking and what have been the twists and turns and where are you today? Well, there is a big twist in our journey called COVID. I don't know if you've heard of it. I had it like five weeks ago, so I've definitely heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're glad that you're feeling better. That's been a difficult journey for so many. So yeah, we started by putting forth in offices because we knew that we needed density and volume in order to make the early economics work. And Yelp was our first pilot partner where we put the fourth bin at the Yelp offices. We got a bunch of restaurants near the Yelp office to carry dispatch containers, steel bowls for their lunches. And then employees could get the steel bowls instead of single use and just put them in the bin when they got back to the office. And it really was the fourth bin. There was a trash compost recycling bin at the office. And then there was a bright pink dispatch bin. And every restaurant that participated had a sign that said, if you're a Yelp employee, ask for a dispatch container. And it was like the most beautiful rocket ship ever. I didn't even 
really know how large of a pain point this was for so many businesses downtown. But immediately, all of the other businesses that were downtown started contacting us to see if they could get a fourth bin at their office and if they could participate in the same system. And we're like, this is amazing. And then COVID hit. So before we move on, what was the pain point that they were feeling? So I think it was two prong. One was just like they had sustainability goals and they realized very quickly that when it came to waste, the number one contribution to their waste stream was the takeout lunches from nearby restaurants. And that felt like a very unsolvable problem for them because it's not like, oh, we can just in our cafeteria switch to reusables. It was a whole orchestration with an entire downtown lunch system where it was really difficult for one business to solve this on their own. So there was a sustainability pain point. And then there was an actual financial pain point where waste is really expensive for companies. And they get dinged very heavily in San Francisco for stream contamination, meaning if you put recyclables in the compost, if you put compostables in the trash, the waste haulers here have pretty hefty fines. Is that coming from them or is that because the government has a policy that enacts that? I think the government has a policy that enacts it. And it's for businesses. Consumers right now, they're not held to the same standard, but it's like hefty fines for businesses. So some businesses were actually paying other companies have their trash pre-sorted so that they wouldn't get dinged as well as washed. So they were washing their recyclables because if you have too much food waste and you're recycling, then you get dinged. And so this was a really big problem for businesses, both from an environmental as well as financial standpoint. So the businesses on the sustainability side, I mean, maybe they had principled ownership, but in a lot of cases, maybe it was just wanting to keep happy employees and the employees were grumbling about all the waste, I'm guessing. And then on the financial side... I mean, that's clear if they're getting dinged and there's a cost associated with it and they don't want to absorb that cost. If they can avoid it, then they're motivated to find an alternative. And what was the initial thought? So you mentioned this fourth bin and dispatch. Is it goods or what? I forget which word you use for the dispatch plates and forks and that. Yeah, our goods. It's an all-encompassing term. And what was the thinking in terms of having your own goods and how are those goods different from the traditional packaging that's single use? Yeah, I would say our first bowls were stain and continue to be stainless steel with silicone lids. And so just based on an experience alone, we recognized pretty quickly that people were excited to get their lunchtime food in something that was better than plastic or even compostables, that it was a more akin to dining in, but they could bring it back to their office. And then I think one of the behavioral things that was really illuminating to us is that the virality, if you're waiting in line at your lunch counter and all of your other coworkers are one after another getting the steel bowl, you want that too. And it's like, oh, right. Yeah, I can get it in a reusable. And then again, mimicking what the behavior is already, which is they already know to go put their things in one of the bins, but we had to differentiate it enough to say like, oh, it's this pink one. Okay, cool. That's And people just did it. And it was really exciting for us because we weren't reinventing some of the behaviors. So again, like they still distribute it into a bin, but the experience was much more delightful. And then again, there's more virality. And then it's fun to walk around with something that is a little bit nicer than your just regular single use. Yeah. There's some social signaling that happens, which I feel like- I'm saving the planet. Look at me. (laughs) Yeah. I think we need to lean into. So if you're at the restaurant and you're getting takeout, you can only get the dispatch goods if your company is a participant? 
Yep. Yeah. So how do the restaurants know who was a participant and who wasn't? It was the honor system. You'd be shocked at how far the honor system has gotten us in this business. And I think that, yeah, it's very clear instructions. We did get to a point that as we were dropping off more and more fourth bins at offices, this is again, like leading right up to COVID, we realized pretty quickly, okay, we're going to have to get past the honor system because restaurants couldn't remember that all of the partners we had at that point. And so we were getting to the next stage of, okay, we're going to need digital badges on like an app on your phone. So that's the direction we were heading. And we dropped off fourth bins at Zendesk. We had pilots lined up for Autodesk and Deloitte. Um, we were doing a walkthrough with Salesforce and then COVID hit. And so that's really like where that came to a screeching halt. Gosh. So you were going in and partnering with these businesses and getting lots of demand. And then you delivered a few pilots and we're getting ready to expand. And then all the businesses stopped having employees that showed up in the office. Yep. And all the restaurants closed because they also catered to the downtown lunch crowd. And we were just getting ready to fundraise. So we had no money and no partners and no businesses. And it was one of those moments that were like, holy crap, how are we going to resuscitate from this situation? And did you know at that point, assuming that that model had remained and scaled, how you would charge or were you still figuring that out? Yeah, we had paid contracts. Employers paid per employee per month, somewhere between 2 and $10, depending on how large their companies were. And so at that point, it was free for restaurants, but companies could pay to have the fourth bin at their office and get their employees access to all of our containers. Got it. And then from a logistical standpoint, the restaurants would need to be stocked with the dispatched goods, and then the companies would need to be stocked with the bins. And then how did everything get delivered on the one side and picked up on the other? You're looking at those first delivery drivers. <laughs> I thought you were the co-founders. Yeah. <laughs> I had a Yelp badge and I would service the bins in the afternoon, dishwash at night, and then we would return the cleans to the restaurants as needed the next day. And basically, Lindsay and I were two of the first dishwashers and drivers. I think, honestly, really to understand what was fully needed in the system. But yeah, we had a little red wagon that we would use and a uh, canvas bags that we still use now to service the return bins that we launder. So it's almost like enabling an eat-in experience, but from wherever you are. That's right. That's correct. I think that there's a study that Disney did that people only walk like 30 feet to find a bin. And if it's not the right bin, they're going to throw it in there anyways. So every place there was a trash compost or recycling bin at the offices, there was a fourth bin too. And that was something that we learned really early on is that if it was going to make its way back to us, because we don't have penalties for non-returned items, it really has been our focus to lower the barrier to entry versus to track containers. But we needed to have it be as convenient as recycling or else things would not make it back to us. And our loss rate was ridiculously low, like 2% with that model. So we were getting all the containers back, 98% back. Okay, so COVID hit, then what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wait, let me guess, you went surfing to clear your head. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel like COVID hit and we took a beat because I think at that point we were like, that was the early days when we were like, oh, it's going to be six weeks and then we'll be back on our feet. <laughs> I actually didn't think that. Yeah. <laughs> I think because of my healthcare background, I was like, I don't really see our way out of this until there's a vaccine. Maya's way more optimistic in life than me, just in general. I'm for sure the pessimist in this relationship. <laughs> and so <laughs> yes. I was like, it's going to be forever. Like until they have a vaccine, I don't know how anyone's going back to the office. 
And so I remember my mom sent me sympathy flowers, like, sorry, your business is gone. And I took a couple weeks to like cry in my beer. And then what we decided first is like, let's talk to customers and see if they still want this. And so that's how we kind of started to understand whether there was still a demand for reuse because there was articles coming out like reuse is dead forever. The virus has killed the circular economy. And people were like putting bleach on their vegetables or something at that point. Like it was just like a lot of nonsensical behavior. People didn't know how the virus spread at that point and didn't know if surface transmission contributed to the viral spread. So we spent a lot of time talking to customers at that moment to understand how they felt about reuse. And restaurants too, but delivery and to-go went sky high. And so we knew that if there was still a to-go market and a delivery market that there's nothing different in that sense, like in terms of transferability with single use and reusables. We realized that this was a big, big waste pain point from the restaurant's perspective. They were feeling an immense amount of guilt because now 100% of their volume was going out into go and they were filling their dining rooms and their inside of their where people would be dining in with to-go packaging. And we had underestimated that pain point from the restaurant's perspective. So it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that in the aggregate, the amount of takeout and to-go increased, but in terms of which restaurants it was coming from, maybe it shifted from the ones that were near offices to the ones that were near more residential areas. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yeah. I think that single-use packaging rose 250 to 300% like month over month after the pandemic started. So the problem was worse than ever. And when we talked to customers, they said the exact same thing. They're like, the waste is accumulating in my home and I feel terrible. And we were like, okay, there's still a market here. Then we started talking to doctors to make sure that what we were going to continue was safe. And we like beefed up some of our protocols and then tried to figure out how we could relaunch because now we didn't have the luxury of was a lot of people in one space to get that density component that we had previously with the downtown lunch crowd. And so when you did relaunch, what elements were the same and what elements were different and how were they different? So we were working towards a pilot with DoorDash right before the pandemic. And then they kind of backpedaled because they were like, we don't know, this is scary. And we're like, we have to get going or we're going to lose all the momentum that we had. And so Zendesk is the director of sustainability there, or I think social impact. He is just an absolute legend. And he told us that he would keep paying us, even though we weren't providing the service to keep us afloat. And I said to him, I actually don't want that. What I want is your business. So I don't care if dispatch takes a dime, but what I want to figure out is how to get food to your employees and reusable packaging and start to build this. And so There was one restaurant that we were about to launch with that didn't close during the pandemic. In fact, their sales skyrocketed and that was Square Pie Guys, like a Square Detroit style pizza place. And it was right by the Zendesk offices. And so we talked to Zendesk and we're like, hey, can we get you guys to pay for food for your employees at home from Square Pie Guys? And we'll provide Square Pie Guys with the packaging so that we could start to learn the delivery logistics or the collection logistics from home. And we didn't have a delivery partner because kind of DoorDash had decided to delay the pilot, we ended up relaunching a little later. So Maya and I, again, had to do the delivery. (laughs) So we started off with one customer, which was Zendesk employees and one restaurant, Square Pie Guys. But we got some publicity around it. And so we kind of were able to get this flywheel going again. Yeah, it was really exciting. I feel like one of the really, really key pieces that is so, so, so unique to the pandemic was that 
we were gathering so much customer feedback and data because we were the delivery drivers and people were home and they were just in their individual home pods. And so anyone that was external, we could just ask one question. And sometimes, I mean, those early like metrics of Maya delivering would be like, <laughs> I'd only get to like two or three houses an hour and now we're at like 12. But like, because I was so curious to ask questions and see like how the experience was and what was working, what wasn't working. And that was one of the things that we've continued to do is just gather an immense amount of as much customer feedback as we can just to ensure that what we're building makes sense and is on the right path. Addressing their biggest pain point. Yeah. And is addressing the biggest pain point because some of our assumptions have been wrong. So is the model still that the businesses pay? No. So we did that for a couple months and learned a lot. And what customers told us is that they don't want to order necessarily through dispatch goods. They just want however they're getting their food, but make it reusable. And so what we realized is this just needs to be something, our first thought is something that you can add on when you're checking out, just like you can add avocado or switch to oat milk. So in August of 2020, we launched basically what the business is now, which is you order however you're ordering through DoorDash. It's now available on Uber Eats for some of our restaurant partners or directly through the site and you can get pickup or delivery. And then basically you schedule collection and we come into your house and collect things. And so we only collect in every neighborhood once a week. So if Tuesday's your dispatch day, Tuesday's always your dispatch day. You can pick a different Tuesday, but it's always Tuesday. And we provide the reverse logistics. And so that got a lot of early momentum for us. Again, like more press. And then we were capturing like 5 to 15% of customers were selecting the dispatch goods option which was awesome because we'd modeled it at three to 5%. So we exceeded our assumptions and it was often the most popular modifier on the menu. We were beating avocado, which I feel like was the running joke for us being Californians. We felt like, wow, you know, we're onto something if we're beating avocado. And so that was really exciting. And then we had a restaurant that said, I actually don't want to offer single use at all anymore. I want everything in dispatch. And we're like, that's kind of terrifying because our hypothesis again had been that People that opt into something care enough to return it. And so we're like, if this is the default, are we just going to bleed inventory because no one cares? And so we had a tiny bit of money at that point, And we use it all basically on enough containers to get this one restaurant launched with 100% dispatch. And that was kind of one of the biggest risks we've taken because we're like, this is either going to go well and we're going to be able to fundraise or this is going to go poorly. And then we're going to be in a pickle. We put all of our chips in. And we, <laughs> we did. Let's go for it. <laughs> It was super scary. (laughs) But what happened was we launched with this restaurant after they made the announcement that everything was going out in dispatch, their takeout volume doubled and we got a higher return rate than with the opt-in customers. So that was a really interesting early finding that really dispatch goods as default adds a lot of benefits for us from a density and volume standpoint. And the return rate increases because when people pay for something, we learned they feel less guilty not returning it. And if they didn't pay for it, then the pressure of the container saying it's not yours, which is basically what it says, is enough to motivate people to return things. So does this add-on cost money? Who pays? So the restaurant pays for dispatch instead of paying for single-use packaging. Right now, we're a tiny bit more expensive than compostables, but we're getting closer. And we're working on some products that will be more cost-competitive with single-use in its entirety. But essentially, yeah, it's just instead of paying for single-use compostables, they're renting dispatch containers, essentially. And in all of that, the logistics are included. 
So we do the collection and our goal is to collect as many items per stop and get to as many stops per hour as possible. And when you say stop, so where are these stops situated relative to the consumers who are ordering the food? The stops are at their homes. So it's like home collection. Got it. And does it require a special? And if so, how will you know who has the bin when they go to sign up in the app when they're ordering the food? So there's no bin. The fourth bin is the visual for the infrastructure, but the food comes in a dispatch bag and they put the bag out in front of their house. And then the drivers get their routes and they go, it's like a little fun scavenger hunt that they go house to house and look for the blue bags. And then they collect and drop off at the warehouse at the end of their route. And for a lot of people, it's just if they ask where to put their bag, it's exactly where they would normally instruct an Amazon driver to place their packages. So if that's a stoop, if that's in their lobby, and then we also have a system of return bins throughout the Bay Area for people that are out and about and also just prefer to return them on their own. We have a lot of people that are repeat customers to certain restaurants and that just like to bring back their bag as well. So we give them options. And when you say they for the drivers, that implies that it's no longer you two? <laughs> yeah, we every once in a while have to roll up our sleeves and do it. And honestly, I really like it. I listen to NPR and in my little Prius and bebop around town to pick up blue bags. It's good work. But yeah, now we have, this has been a really busy month for us. So we're hiring more drivers. So we should be up to about eight drivers after, I think we're going to bring on two more this week. And are these employees of the company? Uh, we use contractors. So it's similar to DoorDash driving. Our delivery drivers are employed. So we have the drivers that are delivering to restaurants, basically the orders for the day, but the contractors do the home collection. Got it. And then in terms of where to go, so, I mean, is there an app that they use similar to what an Uber driver would use or how does that logistics work? Yep, they download the app, they get the route, and then it's just like ping, ping, ping to all the houses in the route and drop them off at the end of the route. And I think right now we have all female drivers, which is Maya and I, when we were doing this job, we're like, this is a really good job for women because it's daytime hours. It's generally, you don't have to communicate or talk to another person. No one's in your car. You're not going to areas late at night to deliver food. So we were like, this is a really female friendly job. And then that's been who applied. And I mean, we have amazing retention for contractors in this space. That's very, I would say, turbulent for keeping people to be driving every week for you. So I think that the consensus is that it's good work. It's a good job. Well, and also because we were doing it ourselves for so long that we've we've done every job at the company so far. And so we understand what is needed to complete the job, but also designing a job that is really fun and it's good pay. It's a lot of our motivation as well, too. And we're able to retain awesome people that like what they're doing. And only Bay Area to start? Yep. So we're in San Francisco, Mill Valley. Well, actually, nowadays we're collecting all the way down to San Jose. So we're in in the greater Bay Area right now. We don't have restaurants in every region, but we have customers that schedule collection. Azuni Cafe was the first restaurant to do 100% dispatch containers. And like Maya said, we interview customers every week because we're always asking them, like, are we tackling your biggest waste pain point? And if not, what is it? And one thing that kept coming up was the freezer packs that come in all the grocery delivery boxes. So we started telling our customers, hey, just put those in there and we'll see if we can clean them and resell them. And then pretty quickly, some of Imperfect Foods employees were our customers. And they're like, can you do this for our company? And we were like, sure. So in like two or three weeks, we launched with Imperfect Foods based on Again, like the packaging being such a major consumer pain point. 
And so starting in October, we allowed people to schedule collection for the other items that we're now collecting, which include deli containers and those freezer packs and a couple other items we're testing. Even if they don't have the dispatch bowls, we have found, again, an enormous appetite for this. We shared this meme on our Instagram page and it was shared almost 300 times in the Bay Area and did like three times better than any other post we've ever done. So people have been hoarding things like freezer packs, knowing that they could be reused, but feeling really guilty. So that's the fourth bin idea. And then from an expansion standpoint, what goes into expanding, say, 10 miles or 20 miles or 50 miles away? And then same question as you look at state to state or even someday country to country. So what goes into it and how challenging is it? We are actually going through this right now as we're expanding beyond the Bay Area. Like how far can we go where we still expect the drivers to go back to the warehouse at the end of the route versus essentially 10 miles, they can come back to the warehouse. There's not a lot that goes into the expansion. Now, 50 miles, that's harder for the drivers to, at the end of the route, want to drive back to that warehouse. So we need to put a storage unit in what we call like our hub and spoke model. That's kind of the next stage of dispatch is to build out these spokes. So we're looking at like Santa Cruz, Sacramento, actually increasingly looking at LA and doing like long hauling once a week from LA for some demand we have there right now, but we're not in a place that we're planning to build a warehouse there tomorrow. And so what our goal is really over the next year, we have models for this, but we want to put it into practice is really understand the economics of transporting and also the carbon impact of transporting and understanding when it's worth building a warehousing infrastructure versus transporting. And so like, yes, in LA, it's possible that we could share a warehouse processing facility. It's also possible we'll build two. But for New York, obviously, we'll need to build a full facility. There's no way that long hauling makes sense from an environmental or economic standpoint. And when it does come to impact, I mean, you mentioned the emissions from transport as an example. How do you think about impact and how do you track it and or report on it, if at all? Yeah, so we measure waste a lot. And so that's one piece that, of course, we track. So this year alone, we've replaced over 200,000 items from the waste stream. So we're excited. I think last year in total, it was a few thousand. So it's been growing quickly, which is awesome. And then from a carbon standpoint, we do our own internal analysis to like understand where our biggest contributor to carbon is. So really, the three buckets are the manufacturing of the packaging, which includes mining and all the source generation or material generation. Um, and then there's the transportation. So that's delivering to restaurants and collecting from homes. And then there's the dishwashing. And so really what we found quickly was that the steel packaging was the biggest contributor pretty quickly. So the first place we look to reduce our footprint is in the packaging itself, which is one of the reasons why we're rethinking, redesigning some packaging to lower the manufacturing footprint of our steel packaging. I think that the thought is that the biggest footprint would come from the collection and the processing, but that's not actually the case. Recyclers also are coming to your house and collecting or composting companies are. So we're just emulating that infrastructure. We're not quite as efficient yet, but with density, we hope to get there. But the actual manufacturing of the containers had, had a bigger impact on our carbon footprint than we'd originally realized, which is why we're rethinking that. And then we also offset all of our driving miles. So it's something that we still, again, hope to reduce over time. But in the interim, that's kind of our solution there. 
And we are going to be launching our impact page on our website so that people can kind of not only see how much we're saving, what Dispatch Goods is doing and some of the behind the curtain, how we think about things, but also a lot of our incredible partners and nonprofits that do a ton of this research and have a really great articles and a lot of great information for people to dig a little bit deeper and understanding our full waste system a little bit better. So we're excited to launch that over the next few months. And from a customer standpoint, I know that the restaurant industry has been struggling. Do the restaurants need to care about this problem because it's the right thing to do? Or if they're just in survival mode and being greedy capitalists, does working with dispatch make sense today? And if not, what does that roadmap look like and what will need to change or where do you need to get to so that even if they don't factor in conscience, as an example, they'll want to work with you anyways? I would say that our early movers in terms of our restaurant partners were very much mission aligned, but because we had to prove ourselves, which allowed for us to understand some of the business benefits because they gave us visibility into what we were doing for their business, their top line revenue. So as Lindsay said, our first 100% restaurant doubled their volume and that maintained. And so they were ecstatic that they had made that shift and they were getting a ton of positive press. And I know that every restaurant owner, some of them avoid Yelp altogether, but their Yelp reviews just changed overnight almost. And they just started to get, this never happens, but positive reviews on packaging and how wonderful the experience was and that the temperature was great because of these thermal bags. And so now over time, as we start to measure the business impact, we are seeing that even if you're not an environmentalist, we are driving top line revenue from a really important consumer base. And one of the reasons that people don't order delivery is because of the waste. And so by alleviating that eco guilt, you're not only driving revenue with a completely new consumer base, but they're ordering more often and they're very loyal and they're very happy customers. And so we've grown with 85% of our restaurants, either a new location or they've gone from opt-in to hundred percent which is really exciting because we know we're doing something good from a business perspective too, on top of an environmental perspective. So it sounds like the story is, I'm stating this as a statement, but really it's just a question to test my understanding. But hey, you know, given we're small, the math may not quite pencil out just yet if you're only looking at cost of dispatch goods versus cost of single-use packaging as an example, but with economies of scale, that's going to come down. And in the meantime, because you're early, you're going to get such a halo that from a marketing standpoint, your sales are going to increase well beyond what they would be to make up for it in an industry where you're probably having trouble differentiating since everybody looks the same. And maybe you don't use those words, but is that the story? That's exactly right. Yep. It's that. And you get containers into a chef's hands and they are really careful about the way their food is presented. And so giving the chef an option to have something that more closely emulates the dine-in experience, I think also can help nudge owners and managers in the direction of support. The one thing that I'll add is that we have had to target a little bit higher end restaurants because of the price point. It's a little unapproachable for fast casual restaurants unless they're doing it as an opt-in and pass the cost on to the consumer. So that's one opportunity area that we're looking at is how to have a product offering that's maybe a different material for that market segment, the fast casual restaurant. And so we have to amortize the cost of the container over its useful life. And so we need to find something that's a little bit probably 
lower material cost in the long run for fast casual restaurants. And so that's where we're at. And I think a really exciting opportunity. We really want to disrupt black plastic. It's not something that people love, but it exists so prevalently and it's so universal. The containers we have now are all off the shelf. So it's really fun right now to take the time to think about what's missing from the system that could be a better experience, but offered at a similar price point. And you mentioned that when you were surfing, you saw this waste on the beaches. And you also mentioned that the waste processing facilities can whack the businesses because of what it sounded like were some policies in place from the local government to do so. From a broader societal standpoint, is the optics and the seeing the trash on the beaches the biggest detriment to health? Or are there other things that this single-use waste does that harm our planet and the people and other living things that are on it? So I think we talk a lot about the downstream effects, so like where waste ends up. And I think that's a lot of times how people get involved or excited about the zero waste movement is I have talked to so many people that had the same reaction to some place where there shouldn't be trash and there was, and it's just enough to get you, okay, let's get rid of plastics. That's usually how we start. But Maya, I'll tell you that in the past few months, we have had a lot of restaurants reach out because they couldn't get their hands on coffee cups or on pizza boxes. And we focus a lot less, I think, in the environmental community and sharing really what the upstream effects are, which is like, where these materials are coming from, what the footprint for manufacturing is, who's living next to these factories and what kind of missions are being put off. And so I always say, where are you going to get more pizza boxes from? Well, trees. We're going to cut down more trees to make pizza boxes that are used on average for 12 minutes and never used again. And so that's when my mind shifted to, we cannot be growing something in one part of the world, shipping it to another part of the world to be manufactured. Best case scenario goes to like a distribution warehouse and then might get chipped across the country to be used for 12 minutes. It's just not the best use of our resources. And the pandemic has accelerated this. We now have restaurants reaching out increasingly because of supply chain disruptions more than anything else. They can't get their hands on the packaging they had before because there's so much demand for it. And it's just not the best use of our resources or ag land, even if it's compostable in the end. And so that's where I would say I'm even more passionate before than like the end of life. It's like, oh my gosh, we have so much need for our resources that we need to focus on curating that for products that are more longstanding than something that's used so temporarily and so wastefully. Yeah, the upstream, it's illuminating that piece of it for people. Then there's this aha moment that's like, right, it doesn't just arrive with my pizza it's probably traveled across the world. And that's absurd just for that one meal. I mean, even now, just as of this week, because of supply chain, there's restaurants that have had to close because they don't have packaging. And I think that there's a real opportunity to say like, reuse is not only a viable, but a necessary solution. I say a lot of times like this problem is stupid and I don't know what better (laughs) word it is. It's just dumb. Like how we've decided to use our resources in such a stupid way is infuriating. And I think about like glass, like glass is one of the most absurd things that we use as single use. There's nothing single use about glass. Why are we putting into a recycling bin? By the way, the carbon footprint of recycling glass is about the same as manufacturing it from virgin materials. There's not a huge environmental benefit to recycling glass. What's a lot lower is just washing it for reuse. And luckily some policy passed in California a couple of weeks ago that makes a really clear pathway for bottle reuse programs in the state. 
So we're seeing the direction shift back towards reuse. But like, in what world did we decide that we should crush this thing just to rebuild the same thing all over again? It doesn't make sense when we could just be supplying materials to a local economy in a much smarter and more sustainable way. And like, we're recapturing the value of products like glass is expensive. These businesses, so many businesses to get away from plastics are shifting to glass for their packaging. That's much more expensive. And it's a lot cheaper to wash that than it is to repurchase that glass all over again. And yeah, much better from a sustainability standpoint. Clearly, we're very passionate about about (laughs) this topic. We could talk about this for hours. And given that, that's the second time I've heard about policy and the importance of policy to properly incentivize restaurants or consumers or whoever to care about this problem beyond for the societal good. So given that, how important is a favorable policy landscape when you look at an expansion path? And a corollary question is, how active do you envision that you'll be as a company over time, if at all, in actually influencing that policy and advocating? I would say that we have always had the perspective that we cannot rely on policy to make our business big and that we have to have a better offering for consumers and businesses. And so that's been our perspective. We've not relied on policy. That being said, policymakers are looking to us to de-risk the policy they want to pass. That's what we've noticed, is that the more market penetration we have, the more their policy agenda is de-risked in that there's a viable alternative. So they come to us a lot about like what policies would work. And some of the ideas they have, I agree with. And some of them I don't as much agree with. I don't know that that would be the way that I would go about it. And so I would say that we have a skin in the game to help them think through as really like as small as we are still one of the bigger operators in the circular packaging economy. We want them to understand the challenges and what actually could help to create a tailwind. But I would say that we have not relied on it as our pathway forward because this needs to exist whether or not our policymakers can can get it together and help create some tailwind for us. I think it's also really trying to wrap their heads around progress, not perfection, and that there are necessary steps. We can't wait for a perfect system. They can't wait for because we'll never get started. And that's always been something that Lindsay and I feel very passionately about and why we don't wait for policy is that we have to just go. And so for them, it's actually been really exciting to see that like, okay, now that we are getting bigger and like, they're like, okay, oh yeah, yeah. Like there are steps that you can create to accelerate reuse. And there, it doesn't have to be the perfect solution to solve a big, messy problem. And there's going to be steps that will enable that problem to get better over time. But yeah, I think that's been exciting for me, at least to see that there's like been like steps in the right direction that they're not waiting for like the perfect time or the perfect policy or for, again, for us to be big enough to be the one solution. It's going to be a lot of different types of collaborative solutions. And do you envision in terms of crossing the chasm and getting into mainstream consumer consciousness and adoption, how much of that is reliant on them becoming awakened to the magnitude of the problem and the social good of reuse versus a more selfish value proposition? What do you think is the hit between the eyes message for mainstream consumers versus the early adopters where you're starting today? I mean, it's been shown that a lot of behavior comes from what your neighbors are doing. 
And so I think that if we do our branding and messaging and marketing well, that we can create a movement where there's the early adopters that are really proud of participating in the dispatch system that help influence their neighbors in the same way we've seen it with solar panels, we've seen it with Priuses. In recycling as well, I think that there's something to the visual of your neighbor participating or someone in your apartment building participating in this that helps motivate. But even more than that, it really, the businesses can make this choice for their customers in a way when it's the default. Now, 70% of our volume is driven by restaurants that have made dispatch goods the default. What that means is there's a lot of customers that didn't choose to participate in this dispatch system, but most of them are still returning it even though it wasn't a choice. And so... We have received very little pushback, I think, because the experience is better too. But that's something that we need to stay on top of and make sure that continues. I think that it's actually an opportunity for businesses to help really shift a market by shifting to reuse as the only option available. Yeah. And I think why we continue to be really excited about this design project is that we can beat single use just on experience alone. So you don't even have to care about the planet, but if you're like, this is nice, I like this, and I didn't have to pay anything more for this, cool. And then my dream is that people look at single use packaging as akin to smoking in airplanes. Like, I can't believe we used to do that or that used to be allowed. Yeah, so I do think that the consumer attitude shifts and then it de-risks policy. In the same way we saw it with ocean-friendly restaurants de-risking banning styrofoam in Hawaii, I think we're starting to see the same thing here. Then there's really big companies that are doing this that we're working with now, like Imperfect Foods and Good Eggs have a lot of market penetration in the Bay Area, and now they're dispatch partners. So the amount of consumers that are touching a product that can be what we call dispatchable, sent back to us for reuse, is increasing. And then it gets to a point that we have enough consumers that have touched a dispatch product that it's like, okay, let's get some potentially policy tailwinds to help support everyone having access. So what are the key priorities for the company over the next 12 months? Like I mentioned, we're doing a packaging redesign, which is really exciting for us. We're also hiring right now. Maya and I have done all the sales so far, so we're excited to grow our sales team. And really, we are working to expand beyond just the Bay Area. And so in January, I think we'll start long hauling from LA based on a partner that's launching there that wants us to come with. And so that's very exciting to start to map out the additional costs, both like I said, carbon and and actual financial costs of doing that. So for us, it's building that blueprint for scale so that we know how many facilities we need to address the 50 largest markets in the US and what that's going to cost us. So creating that blueprint is going to be absolutely invaluable for us so that we can properly solve this problem for large companies that are not just Bay Area centric. I'm just excited. We've just seen a big uptick in solving this problem for a lot of companies that have been trying to think about ways to reduce their impact and their waste. And it's been really thrilling for our team. And again, I'm so excited to hire some more salespeople because I think that there's just such an enormous opportunity for us to grow and scale just within the Northern California market, but understand, again, that blueprint for the rest of the country. Where do you need help? Who do you want to hear from? So we're hiring right now an operational finance person to help us create that blueprint. So that is a very key hire for us. We want someone that is comfortable, like boots on the ground, understanding the operations and the cost contributors in our processing facility, as well as working closely with me to create the blueprint for scaling. And then we're hiring sales right now. And then one probably junior designer. We actually are bringing on 
the former creative director from Airbnb. So we're excited that he's going to be leading our brand strategy. So that's going to be a really exciting opportunity for a junior person to work with somebody that's built something pretty cool. And we're also always hiring amazing drivers who are looking for some really solid gig work during the day hours where you get to go on a cool scavenger hunt and you get paid pretty well to do so. Yep. Anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words for listeners? Yeah. So I would say that one thing that we have seen happen is we partner with businesses, Imperfect Foods, but also offices and restaurants, now grocery stores. If you're working in a space and you're like, man, I wish that my company would do this. It's not been the director of so-and-so that has made the change in an organization. It's someone that is just very motivated and kind of incessant about the fact that they want to shift this. And so it's been really exciting to see how one person, even if they're not the one in charge, can shift in an enormous way the culture and the sustainability focus of a business. So if you want to get activated, sometimes the best way is to just start where you are and look for solves because there's been a handful of people that have changed the direction of dispatch just because they were motivated to get their company to do this. Yeah, be the squeaky wheel. (laughs) Yeah. Companies listen to their consumers. I think consumers underestimate the amount of influence that they can have on companies shifting their focus and their priorities. That has been one of the reasons why we've been able to accelerate is that if you say you hate the waste, they're listening. And so use your voice for good. And I think that that is a great starting point. And then advocate for progressive policies. There's a lot of really great things that are very easy to do regardless of where you're located. Waste is a problem everywhere. Waste is a problem everywhere. Also, kindness is free. (laughs) Great. Well, I can't wait for Dispatch Goods to come to Boston. Same. I'm from Massachusetts, so I cannot wait to be in Boston. And I already have two drivers, my parents, ready to roll. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Well, thanks so much, both of you, for coming on the show and sharing your stories. I think it's awesome what you're doing and wishing you and the whole Dispatch Goods team, growing team, every success. Thank you so much, Jason. Hey everyone, Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.